Hi, my name's Courtney Doctor, and I'm the Director of Women's Initiatives at the Gospel Coalition. My friends and I lovingly refer to the women we see once a year at TGCW as our camp friends, because the time we enjoy together at a conference feels just like a week at camp. And I want to encourage you to invite your camp friends, the people you want to sit beside as you listen to great teaching, worship, stay up late chatting about theology and life, and just have fun. And if you don't have camp friends to bring, come and meet some new ones. The final price increase is on May 8th. This is your last chance to save on your registration. Sign up at tgcw24.org. I really hope to see you there. That's tgcw24.org. Christina Stanton was on top of the world. I did what a lot of people do. I, I packed one little suitcase of clothes and made my way up to New York and said, here I am. I want to be on the Broadway stage. Christina was 23 when she landed in New York City. The first thing she learned was that making it big was harder than it looked. She auditioned all the time, but there weren't enough gigs to pay the bills. So she picked up a day job as a tour guide, and she gathered roommates to share costs in a tiny apartment near Times Square. She made a few attempts to attend church. She'd grown up in a Christian family, but she only knew of four congregations. And anyway, there were too many other things to do. After a while, Christina settled in. She was really good at giving tours, and she moved from double-decker tour buses to private companies. She met a man named Brian on Match.com. By the way, they were one of the first successful couples of Match.com, and they're still the longest married couple on that website. Brian was moving his way up in the financial world. He was nominally Catholic, but by now she was only culturally Protestant. Religion wasn't important to either one of them. So we, we both had kind of different religious backgrounds that definitely made us believe in Jesus. However, how it was being played out in our lives at the time was, a, was very shallow, very compartmentalized, was not an active part of our lives. We hadn't found a church we hadn't even started to try. It wasn't deep. It didn't affect our everyday life for sure. When nobody's going to church, you don't have to argue about which one to attend. Happy together, Brian and Christina got married. They moved into a new apartment in the financial district that had the rarest of things in New York City, a sizable outdoor terrace. If you stood on it, your eyes would be drawn right to the World Trade Center towers just six blocks away. And these aren't six big city blocks like in downtown Chicago. When New York made their streets, they basically paved over horse trails. And so downtown, the blocks are tiny. We had a new puppy, it was a Boston Terrier, and everything was new. It was a new puppy, it was this new apartment, it was, all of our stuff was new. And I thought, wow, you know, the sky's the limit. And I thought that as I was looking at these two towers that stretched out into the sky, and, and that's how I felt. It was like, wow, this, this is a new beginning, and 
I have, we have this awesome future and we're going to rule this town and we're going to take it on. And, and I was thinking about the parties and all of the, the trappings. I just, I wanted it all. But that was before the sky came crashing down. A few weeks ago, I flew to New York to walk around Manhattan with Christina while she told me what happened. Listening to the Remember 9-11 series on Recorded, the all-new storytelling podcast from the Gospel Coalition. In this episode, TGC senior writer Sarah Zalstra takes us back through the events of September 11, 2001. We do want to note that today's episode includes details of 9-11 that could be disturbing for some, so please listen with care. Now, here's Sarah with the story of this episode. The sky outside Christina's terrace windows on September 11, 2001 was a perfect cloudless blue. By 8.45 a.m., the streets were filled up with people on their way to work. Each day, about 50,000 of them would end up in the World Trade Center complex, which housed about 430 companies. Chris Jamona was already at work, up the street in another building. He worked in the corporate offices of Marsh & McLennan, a professional services firm. So I actually went into work early that morning, and my office faces south. So I was looking right at the One World Trade Center when I saw the first plane go by. And, you know, honestly, who sits there thinks, you know, a plane's flying by? You didn't know what it was. At first, I thought it was like a projectile. When it hit the building, the building burst into flames at the floor. And there was a colleague in the office with me, and she started counting down the floors and said, you know, I think that plane hit, like, right about our floor. We have three floors. It did hit their floors. While Chris watched, nearly 300 of his colleagues lost their lives, most before they even knew anything was wrong. Chris called his wife. Barbara, who worked in the Morgan Stanley headquarters a few miles away. And I said, Barbara, you know, I think a plane just hit the World Trade Center. But, you know, you didn't stop to think jet, right? You just thought, okay, some small plane was out flying and maybe the pilot had a heart attack and the plane just went and hit the building. You know, initially, nobody thought anything about it until you started hearing the CNN reports. And then you started seeing clips of this jetliner going over some workers on the street or something, and you were like, oh, this is more serious than we thought it was. Meanwhile, Christina was still sleeping when the first plane hit the North Tower. Brian was working on his computer in the other room. He he looked up and went out on our 300-square-foot terrace to see what, what just happened that just shook our building. And he saw flames coming from either side of the North Tower. Now, that first plane flew from north to south and it lodged into the tower. It didn't come out the other side. So that was the facade that we saw. So the north side? We saw the south side. And if the plane had come through that, through the building, it would have come through that side. So instead it lodged in. So all we saw were flames on either side of the building. We didn't know what had happened. So Brian came and woke me up and he was in quite a panic. And he said, somebody must have Uh, detonated a bomb at the World Trade Center. And mind you, it was not far from 1993 in February when they had done that. So I 
uh, hopped out of bed, ran to our terrace, and we were just kind of watching this crazy scene. You know, from the 24th floor, you don't hear a lot of street noise. So watching uh, the, the, the police cars and the ambulances with their sirens going off, going up the West Side Highway towards the World Trade Center, people were screaming collectively. It was, it just all didn't make sense in your brain as your brain is trying to understand and calculate like what is going on. Then all of a sudden over our, my right hand shoulder, the second plane came just 500 feet above us because that second plane hit between the 78th and 86th floors. The shockwaves from the impact blew them both backward and knocked them out. We had left the, our terrace doors open, which ended up being a blessing. But I woke up lying on our living room floor with our dog Gabriel jumping on my torso, scared to death, very upset. And I remember Brian saying different things to me. I was having a hard time calculating what he was, what he was saying, but I did discern. I do remember him saying, do you want your shoes? And I remember saying, no, let's get out of here. Christina raced down 24 flights of stairs. Brian, who did grab his shoes and his wallet and their dog, was a minute or two behind her. They emerged from their apartment building to find a street full of people moving toward them. Now, I want you to picture where they are here. Their borough, Manhattan, sits on a small, skinny island. On the southern end of it, it narrows even further into a little pencil tip. Brian and Christina live on that tip. North of them, the burning towers stood between them and the rest of the city. But nobody they saw was trying to get north to the rest of the city. People were running south, past Brian and Christina, to a place called Battery Park at the very end of the island. About that time, I was kind of still collecting myself, and I realized, wow, I'm, I'm in my pajamas with no shoes. So I thought, oh my goodness, I need to get back into, let's start this all over again. Let's go back into our home, let me put on some clothes, grab my purse, things that we need, and yes, evacuate again, but let, let's do a take two on this. We go, we turn the corner to go to the front of our building, and Miguel, our doorman, was, was Christina, we, we can't let anybody in, evacuation only. I was like, Miguel, look at me, I'm in my pajamas, because I'm so sorry, Christina, but we can't let you. But you know what, Brian gave me his socks, I was fine. And also when I was watching people on the street running past and all, all crazed and, and um, bloodied and shredded clothes and uh, completely panicked, I was like, no one cares what I'm wearing. So what, what happens next is, you know, your inner alarm is dinging and saying, you know, go as far away from the danger as possible. And for us, so if you see here right now, if I'm looking north, yep. north is the World Trade Center complex, a 16-acre complex. That was north for us. So you can't go north. That's the danger. And you can't go uh, uh, west. That's the Hudson River. The coastline stops. You're, you run out of land. So what you had was south. South made the most sense. So south for us is Battery Park which we're, we're gonna go to now. Yep. The Battery Park for us was as far away as we could get before we ran out of land, which became the New York Harbor. But once we went to uh, this, the few blocks to Battery Park, we felt we were safe there and that was fine. So it turns out we weren't safe at all. 
didn't know what a small area Christina and Brian were operating in. So from the World Trade Centers to the New York Harbor, with the Stanton's apartment and Battery Park in between, is only about a mile. If Brian and Christina had turned north from their apartment, it would have taken them less than 10 minutes to walk over to the Twin Towers. Turning south toward the park at the bottom of the island took them less than five. Battery Park itself is not huge. It's only about 25 acres, but it has always been strategic. Dutch settlers built a fort there in the 1600s to protect the earliest version of the city, and then Americans built a second fort to fend off the British in the War of 1812. That fort is still there. Today you can see the walls and a battery of cannons that stood guard against foreign attacks. By the way, the community next to the park, which is named Battery Park City, was where Chris Jamona lived. We'll hear from him again later. Battery Park City was built in the 1970s when New York City dumped rocks and dirt into the water to extend the island. Where did they get enough landfill material to do that? Well, much of it came from the construction of the World Trade Center complex. You see, it's just a few blocks from our apartment. And what happened was, all of the emergency vehicles were coming from, from this area, whipping around the bottom of Manhattan and going up the, the West Side Highway. So, because they're all racing towards the building and that was their route as they were coming this way. And meanwhile, I, I remember we kind of stayed here at the very top of the park, hugging the park. This is a sidewalk that, that is the very tip of the park. And I remember watching people come to this sidewalk and they, it's almost like they had finished a marathon, you know, like kind of that watching people like, oh, we've crossed over the finish line, we've made it to safety. People would sit down, people would, you know, sit on the ground and we're panting. But it's, it is kind of like we all had the same idea that this is the safe place, we're out of danger. Meanwhile, none of our cell phones were working. And so our, what everybody knew of what was going on were the, the people coming in probably had more updated information. So everybody was saying, hey, have, do you know what's going on? Did you just leave the TV or did you leave the office where you weren't watching the news? Like, do you know updates? And so we were up here listening to different rumors that we, we'd heard about. Um... In all those rumors, though, one was missing. Nobody was worried about the stability of the buildings. Not a single person suggested they might collapse. We heard a, a rumor that a plane had already hit the United Nations. We heard that a plane was en route to the Statue of Liberty. And I, I was getting so panicked by listening to everybody who were just trying to get, you know, what's, what was really wild is all of this, we were in the midst of all this, and we didn't know what was going on. People at least Panicked by what they were hearing, Brian and Christina decided to move to the other side of the park, to the southernmost edge, right next to the water. I wanted to get as far away and try to collect myself, because I still felt like I was in this panic mode and I couldn't think straight. I just was trying to think. So we came down here, and you see all these benches all around. We sat down on a bench, and I remember staring at the Statue of Liberty, just worried that a plane was going to fly into her. And it was a day like today. Look how gorgeous it is. It's, the sky is blue. You can see Staten Island right there. And you can see little Governor's Island right there. So I just felt like this is a calming place to be. But then all of a sudden, the ground started rumbling. And I could not think of why was the ground moving. 
Was it an earthquake? Was it a bomb? Come on, did, did a plane actually go into the ground? Uh, you know what, but I remember hearing this collective scream, kind of like if you were in a, st a sports stadium. And all of a sudden, everybody understood at the same time, you know, a building is coming down. People went nuts because, again, these towers were so high in the sky. You knew that if they fell lengthwise in any direction, and let's say it, 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 it fell south, it could have hit us. We are all very aware of that. So people went absolutely nuts. They were catapulting over these benches and the fences and the shrubs and uh, like trees. It was almost like a, an obstacle course down here. And they were, they were trying to get again as far away from the danger as possible. But then guess what? Then here's the coastline. That's the New York Harbor. I did watch people pitch themselves into the harbor and I knew they were trying to swim to Governor's Island, which was probably as, as close as you could get to here, the quickest swim. It's about a mile from Battery Park to Governor's Island, which would take a strong amateur swimmer about 45 minutes to an hour. It's not an impossible feat, but the reason triathlons always start with swimming is because it's easy for a fatigued person, even an athlete, to drown. And nobody in Battery Park was feeling fresh and rested and ready to start a triathlon at 10.15 a.m. on September 11. We started running with the crowd. You know, we started running. We ran east towards the Staten Island Ferry, hoping that we could get on a ferry. But at that particular time, they had abandoned the ferry boats. And then all of a sudden, a huge wall of black smoke came down from the 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 downed uh, North Tower. And um, I'm sorry, that would have been the, 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 the South Tower at the time. So, but it was, it, it hit the ground. The idea of not being able to breathe was even scarier than being hit by potential building rubble. It's almost like your body does something really crazy of like the idea of not being able to breathe. And that's when people really, I felt that the, the most extreme panic I remember somebody running with their German shepherd on a leash. You know, everybody's running crazily. Another woman running up to the woman with the dog, tripping on this leash. I probably hit her around the knees, flipping over the, le the leash, landing on her back, didn't move. And I remember watching the woman with the German shepherd kind of look back and circle back and ask if she was okay, and I didn't say anything more of that. Also, I remember have these you know strange you know bits of memory of we are near a, a, a one of the buildings that came down was a Marriott that was on the on the the grounds of the of the World Trade Center complex, and they were all wearing this dress. It was like a brown dress with, with it said the Marriott and had cuffs, white sleeves. And there was a whole whole bunch of them that they were running around. I remember thinking, what a strange sight. You know, um, I mean, but all of it was a strange sight. I remember seeing an Asian businessman who's literally his, his three-piece business suit were, were gone by the knees and it was all shredded. And his face was so contorted in this terrible look 
that is, you know, it's one of those things that's etched in your memory. But yet I remember the juxtaposition of he was still holding his briefcase and he was running, you know, with it. I mean, just like it, every, none of it made sense. We were really so close to those, those towers that when they came down, the dust immediately infiltrated the air and was so thick in the air. You can hear the rumble. The rumble sounded like it was literally right behind us. But the dust obscured anything you could see. You, you couldn't see past these treetops. We were almost, like somebody said, were you, were you too far away to see it fall? I said, actually, the opposite. We're too close to see it. And the dust that it kicked up immediately obscured. And we were worried about the dust. We were worried you couldn't breathe through the dust. You were worried about the smoke being asphyxiated by the smoke. And... You know, at that point, you're realizing, wow, okay, so if any worse than this, and that means death, because it, that's, that's the natural progression. It can't get any much worse, but if it did, that's, that's where we would be going. Death from asphyxiation or getting hit by flying debris is a terrifying thing to face, but how much scarier would it be if you didn't have the hope of heaven to cling to? We found ourselves right there within the circular fort of Castle Clinton. We were kind of hugging the fort walls and we we're just looking around, watching everybody crazily running, panting. Our dog was completely tired. We watched Gabriel kind of flop down into the dust, trying to catch a breath. We're still trying to breathe. I remember looking at Ryan saying, are we gonna die? And he said, I don't know, maybe. And he grabbed my hands and he started saying the Lord's Prayer. And I remember I, I didn't bow, I didn't close my eyes, which is what he was doing. I was looking around and I, was, I remember concentrating on him at one point and thinking, gosh, I'm so glad I'm with him because we're gonna die and I'm with my new husband and all these people running around are not with their loved ones. They don't have, they can't even call them and say goodbye. And I remember thinking, you know, I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up, I was baptized at 11 years old, but I had long since strayed. I was even reconsidering my faith. Christina thought about how easy it had been to call herself a Christian growing up and how much harder that had gotten when she moved to New York. She wondered if she even deserved to go to heaven, if her baptism was enough. She asked for forgiveness for the angry fight she'd recently had with someone. She felt like a hypocrite asking for God's help now when she hadn't thought of him in ages. It was a very lonely feeling. Even though I'm here with my husband and my dog, at least we're together, I experienced some profound happiness by, by finding him and starting this exciting new life together. And I'm like, all of those things that I wanted to be and do, none of that's helping me now. None of that is, means a hill of beans now. In fact, there's nothing that I can fall on now except for God, and I don't have God. That was a big moment that I think about a lot because that ended up being a pivotal moment in my life. It was my, my own ground zero. After a while, Brian and Christina started moving down the street again. Brian saw the smoke was blowing south and figured if they walked east, they might be able to get clear of some of it. They made their way past trees and flowers and reflecting pools completely coated with a ghoulish looking ash. It was a strange substance, I remember. It wasn't sand. It was, it was small 
granules like sand, but it was sticky and it would stick to you. It didn't like slide off you like sand would. It literally was, it's like a, a bucket of sand had been thrown on you, but that sand stuck. The substance was a mixture of pulverized concrete, wood, wiring, and, well, bodies. Coated in it, Brian and Christina sat down to rest on a spot of grass. They were out of the main column of smoke now, and they could see the Statue of Liberty on Ellis Island. They could also see New Jersey across the Hudson River, about a mile away. Normally it felt so close you could touch it. Now it seemed so far away you could never reach it. When the police officer ran up, also completely yellow, the only way Christina recognized him was his hat. Hey, he told the crowd, that second tower is coming down. Get down by the river and turn your backs to it. So they did. Pressed up against an iron railing that separates the seawall from the Hudson River, they felt the rumble of the collapse. Remember, we all just kind of stood up at the railing when it was clear that it was finished falling. And we, again, we just felt so trapped, like, like the world is falling and we don't know, we're surrounded by water. We don't know where to go or what to do. About four miles north of Christina, on the other side of the disaster, the staff of Redeemer Presbyterian Church heard about the first plane on the radio. At this time, Andrea Mungo was in charge of the diaconate, which cared for the needs of the congregation. I usually would get to the office sometime between 8.30 and 9. We were at 271 Madison at the time on the 15th floor. And I walked off the elevators and always check in with the receptionist on the right. And he was there listening to the radio and had just heard the news himself. And so I I stand there and, and try to comprehend what I'm hearing on the radio and uh, I'm, I'm stunned. I'm in shock. Several of us that were already there went out on a balcony. You could climb out a window to a balcony that was right on Madison Avenue. And we were able to look down, look south, and we could see the towers burning. And so we just gathered there watching in horror what was happening. And then we saw the towers, the first one fall at 10 a.m. And the second one fell at, at 10.30. We were able to see see them go down. I mean, this 271 Madison is like right around East 38th. So it was pretty far up, but we were able to see it because they were huge towers, you know. And then one of our pastors, Pastor Tim Pettit, who was there with us, he gathered us for prayer shortly thereafter. And I remember the Psalm, Psalm 46, we prayed through. It starts with God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And therefore we will not fear Redeemer's founding pastor, Tim Keller, was out of the office, but not out of town. He'd planned to spend the day at the hospital while his youngest son had surgery on an injured leg. We were actually getting ready to take Jonathan to the hospital, of course. That was immediately canceled. We did watch the second plane. It was astounding to see it actually just disintegrate. I mean, nobody thought that would happen. It was like another planet, another world. Christina and Brian felt like they were in another world. They were huddled together against a black iron railing, the only thing between them and the water. And then they saw boats. The Coast Guard knew that there were thousands of us down here at Battery Park, south of the, of the devastation who were trapped, or at least hemmed in. And they had to move us off this island. So they issued a radio call saying, hey, maritime industry in New York and New Jersey, if you own a boat or a boat operator, come to Battery Park, Battery Park City, and start picking people up and drop them off somewhere. 
So all of these boats started coming and picking people up. And I heard they, they, they would drop them off at Governor's Island or Staten Island in New Jersey, or some, I understand, went up the Hudson and dropped them off at, let's say, Upper Manhattan. But you see where we found ourselves here, this isn't a docking area. There's no, there's no pier. So what they did was they, the, the boats in this particular area got up as close to the seawall as possible, threw over ropes, and there were guys that were helping to chuck people in. I have seen pictures of, of ladders. Like there's some ladders that they would try to balance on here so people could, could, could. but our particular boat, um, we were chucking ourselves in. And so I remember there was two burly guys that to me clearly worked in the maritime industry, but I didn't know why they were here. How did they get here? Who, um, singled them out to help load the boats. I wasn't sure. They got, they, they took our dog first or, and one guy said, hey, does this dog bite? I remember thinking, why are they asking if the dog bites? But of course, when they took the dog from Brian and chucked him into the boat, was he gonna you know, get spooked and bite? But when it was my turn, I sat on this curved railing to balance myself. And then these two guys, with, were, took me by the arms and lowered me into the boat. But I remember one guy saying to the other guy, because I had on one of these cotton dress gown, nightgowns on, and he said, hey man, watch the lady's skirt. And I remember thinking, what is he saying? Why, why is he saying that? And I, I thought maybe he was even talking about somebody else. Of course, it was, wasn't until later when I kind of collected myself, I realized, oh, they were trying to protect my modesty. Which was so, so, I mean, and I was, I couldn't feel less like a lady at that time. Like, there's no, there's, lady is not in the house. You know, like, I'm yellow, I'm literally filthy, and my hair is in a mohawk, I'm in a nightgown, and he, he's trying to protect my modesty. I, I wish, it was one of those things that you, you wish you could say thank you, or if I could find that person, but... Yeah, lost a time, but I never forgot that. We did. Christina and Brian's boat dropped them off in New Jersey in a place called Paulus Hook and then turned around and went back for more passengers. Over nine hours, hundreds of boats, commuter ferries, dinner cruises, private yachts, fishing boats would rescue about half a million people trapped on the toxic tip of Manhattan. It would become the largest water evacuation in history. Let's go back to earlier that morning, before New York began breaking and burning. In Washington, D.C., the staff of Capitol Hill Baptist Church gathered for a regular Tuesday morning meeting at lead pastor Mark Dever's house. Rachel Croft was the church's children's director, and she lived with her husband, Scott, on the church campus. Here's Scott Croft. So I was getting ready for work, and I can't remember. I think it was Rachel who I called, but I, I picked up my very large brick-like cell phone and uh, tried to make a call to someone, and I could not get a signal at all. There was no cell service, and that was extremely unusual on Capitol Hill, right, in the middle of a, an urban area. So I thought, well, that's weird. And then I walked over to the church office and there was nobody there. I was like, okay, it's Tuesday, so there's staff meeting. So I walked over there and Mark and Rachel and Bill, and I, I 
can't remember who else was there. And they had the TV on and they said, you got to see this. The first plane had hit and then the second plane hit while we were all there. At first, Scott and the rest of the team thought this was only a New York problem. We literally felt it first before we knew anything. We had watched the two planes hit the Twin Towers in New York. And then all of a sudden, sitting in Mark's study, it felt like there were a bunch of kids on the floor above jumping off bunk beds at the same time. So we hear this noise and Mark's house shakes. And it was significant enough, loud enough, palpable enough in feeling that we thought it was the Capitol. Here's Mark Dever. I heard a loud explosion, but from a distance, I looked out my study window just here to my right, and I could see smoke to my extreme right, but that's not, that would not be the White House. The White House I couldn't see from here. And so I thought, well, that doesn't make sense. And then within like 60 seconds, they're switching over and saying the Pentagon has been hit. And that made sense. That's where, you know, you could see the smoke's coming down from that direction. While Mark was inside figuring out where the smoke was coming from, Scott was doing the same thing outside. So I immediately ran downstairs, went outside, ran across Caddy Corner from 5th Street to East Capitol to look at the Capitol building. And the Capitol building was obviously intact, but there were people in suits, ties, business attire, running, screaming from the Capitol building, down the stairs and running up East Capitol Street toward me. So then we knew that something had happened in D.C., but we didn't know where or what. Obviously, it turned out to be the The runners told Scott they'd gotten a warning that a plane was coming for the building and everyone should get out. They didn't know what else was happening. They heard maybe a plane was coming for the White House. They'd heard there was a bomb in front of the FBI building. It felt like chaos. Scott ran back inside. So I went back up to the study. I said, nothing's at the Capitol yet, but they think it might. Mark had a, you know, their house was four floors, including a basement. So I said, you know, do we want to go down? Do we want to go out? We were thinking it through. Mark had us pray. Whoever was in there, we all prayed, including for the terrorists, not solely for them, but including them, which I thought was weird at the time, but have since realized that was just the right thing. For Mark Dever and Tim Keller, it was a day of phone calls, trying to figure out if anyone from their congregations had been killed or injured in the attacks. While both had members inside the fallen buildings, none had been killed, but everyone in their congregations was devastated. There were friends who worked at the Pentagon who people they knew were killed, though none of our members were killed. And we had more people that we were, our members of our church were close to in the Twin Towers because there there were so many people there. We had a former fiance, we had a cousin. Yeah, so there were lots of people that were known well. There were people close to members of our church. There was one family who, uh, their little four-year-old son had his playmate killed. He was uh, with his family, he had flown out of the plane from National Airport was headed out to the Midwest to see their family. And they were on the plane when it turned around, hit Pentagon. So he talked to that family. I think just remembering that the strangeness of trying to explain to a family death to a four-year-old for their friend for nothing they did wrong other than get on the plane to go see their grandparents. The suddenness of it, the unexpectedness of it. The death toll of nearly 3,000 people was at the same time horrifically large and blessedly small when you consider about 50,000 people worked in the seven buildings of the World Trade Center complex and another 27,000 worked in the Pentagon. Those 3,000 lives would spark a war in Iraq and Afghanistan, spur the creation of the Department of Homeland Security, and reshape air travel. 
and they would change the way Americans thought about religion. Here's John Piper, then pastor of Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis. I don't remember the very moment that I heard it, but I remember standing in the kitchen after breakfast knowing it through the radio. Tuesdays are when we have our, in those days when we had our staff meeting, that was coming in about 30 minutes or, or less. And I, so I knew, I'm, I'm just quickly trying to get ready for my staff meeting. And this news is breaking over me. My overwhelming sense was this changes everything. This changes everything. Immediately, my day is gone. This week is gone. Everything is different for the, for the foreseeable future. And then, and then I, I knew everything is different for the nation because my mind thought 50,000 people. They were saying before the towers fell, 50,000 people work in those buildings and it's work day. And I'm thinking as the thoughts come, I'm kind of hold back the tears and shaking, you know, just like, no, everything is, is changed. After hearing the news on his radio, he set out toward his office. I had a boom box. Not a huge one, but a, and I put it on my shoulder and walked, and I walked across my bridge. I've walked across this bridge 15,000 times on the way to church, and I've got this boombox on my shoulder. That's my best technology. So I went to church. I walked into the room. I remember the very room. I remember the table. I remember on which side I sat, the south side. I think there were about eight of us gathered around the table. Everybody's just silent. I put the boombox in the middle of the table, and I just turned it on and said, This changes everything, guys. Let's just listen for a while before we uh, pray and think. And we we just listened in silence for a while. And then uh, when we felt like there was enough news, we turned it off and prayed and just pled for the people, pled for everything that we could think to pray for, for a season. And then we looked at each other and said, okay, we have a flock. What do we do? What do we do? Pastors across America were asking the same question. How do you shepherd a church through something like 9-11? And how do you care for them in a post-9-11 world? The response of Christians across the country would change Brian and Christina's life. We'll dig into that and more in the next episode. Recorded as part of the Gospel Coalition's podcast network. Its executive producer is Stephen Morales. It's produced and edited by Josh Diaz and me, Heather Farrell. Sound design by Josh Diaz and Robbie Herrera. Artwork by Gabriel Reyes. Our editor-in-chief is Colin Hansen. The Remembering 9-11 series was hosted and written by Sarah Zalstra. Special thanks to Diala for the intro song and Andrew Lapara for assistance with production. You can find more podcasts from the Gospel Coalition at tgc.org slash podcasts. Thanks for listening to Episode 1 in the Remembering 9-11 series. Be sure to continue the story by listening to Episode 2. It's ready for you right here on Recorded.